again. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. And returning to our expositional study in 1 Peter, this morning our attention will be given exclusively to verse 8 of chapter 4. And to set verse 8 in its surrounding context, I want to begin reading in verse number 1. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead." For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober, and watch unto prayer. And then our text in verse 8. And above all things have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. And the title of my message this morning is The Preeminent Attribute of Christian Love. The Preeminent Attribute of Christian Love. Having reminded believers in verses 1 through 4 that God in Christ hath saved them to live unto the will of God, and having exhorted God's people to continually live in light of eternity, In verses 5 through 7, the Apostle Peter in verse 8 now urges these scattered saints to keep the flames of Christian love fueled and burning hot among the flock. Now here at the outset of our message, I want you to carefully think of the great wisdom of God in moving Peter to speak this particular message of exhortation. Why do you suppose it was needful for Peter to preach the message of verse 8 to this congregation of believers at this particular time? Why do you think God desires that these people who are weak, discouraged, sincerely struggling, and trying to fight off discouragement, hear yet another sermon on the subject of Christian love? I'll give you the answer. It's because God and Peter know that during times of trial, during times of suffering, we have this subtle sinful tendency to focus on ourselves. Often during times of great distress, the spirit of self-pity rears its ugly head and causes us to grumble. 
In the midst of great trials, we often think and sometimes say things like, look at what I'm dealing with. Look at all the loss and heartache that has come my way. Can't you see that I'm hurting? Don't you know what great problems I'm dealing with? Why are you not feeling sorry for me? Why are you not comforting me? Why are you not encouraging me? Why, why, why me, me, me? Come on, it's true. When we meet with the troubles of life, often there's this little voice that sometimes fuels our pride and harmfully accuses others of not doing for us what we think others ought to be doing for ourselves. If I've seen it once, if I've heard it once, I've seen it and heard it a dozen times among the fellowship of local churches. A church member frustratingly leaves the fellowship of the flock and when asked the reason for their departure, they say, quote, nobody called me. Nobody served me. Nobody cared about what I was going through, so I'm gone. Now, sometimes the complaints are legitimate, and the body of Christ has not done their part in caring for a hurting brother or sister in Christ. But most of the time, the one who is making such accusations has amnesia and has forgotten the many ways the church has sought to care for them in their trouble. Or the one suffering has become so self-consumed in their trial that they want everyone to go around feeling sorry for them to the degree that they are feeling sorry for themselves. And listen, this is the context of 1 Peter. Peter is writing to real Christians who live in a real world with a real spiritual enemy like you and me who are really hurting. And in so many words, Peter is saying, I know you are hurt. I know you are discouraged. I know you are dealing with disappointments and losses, but you must avoid turning inward in the midst of your problems. If you're tempted to say, can't you see that I'm hurting? You need to honestly look around and recognize the fact that you are not the only one hurting. In fact, everyone is hurting in their own unique way. So this is the spiritual prescription given by Dr. Peter to this hurting community. The spiritual medication is for God's people to be like Christ in esteeming others better than themselves, looking not on their own problems, but every man also on the problems of others. And Peter knows that God's people need another reminder that the greatest threat to their Christian testimony is their selfishness. And Peter knows that the greatest method of evangelism to the world is their selfless love. For it's Jesus who said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if... Ye 
have love one for another. In other words, Jesus says the world is watching. The world may not be reading a Bible, but they are reading your life. They are reading the testimony of Christ's church. They are watching how believers act and react to the problems of life. And it's one thing to say that you love God when the circumstances of life seem to be pleasant. It's another thing to show that you love God when the circumstances of life are against you. So Peter is saying, watch yourself. Be on guard. Don't forget your mission. Watch unto prayer. Keep your eyes on Christ. Look outward, not inward. Have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Now, having considered the contextual reason for Peter's exhortation in the remainder of our time together this morning, I want to take this one verse and I want to analyze it by setting it in four natural points of consideration. First, I want us to consider the presumption of love that Peter implies upon the text. Second, I want us to consider the priority of love that Peter emphasizes within the text. Third, I want us to consider the practice of love that Peter suggests from the text. And then fourthly, I want us to consider the perceivable product of love that Peter declares to be the tangible result of of true Christian love. Four natural points of consideration that are taken from this one verse. And that being said, looking to our first point, I want you to notice with me the presumption of love. The presumption of love. Implied within the text is the foundational biblical belief that those who know Christ savingly will have a natural love for other Christians. When Peter says it is needful for those who he is addressing, namely believers, to have fervent charity among themselves, he is automatically assuming that they've been born again. Peter is naturally assuming as a result of their new birth, they will have a genuine love for the brethren. And let me just say that this is the presumption of every human author of Scripture, because this is the truth of God. God's Word clearly affirms that those who truly know God will truly love others. Jesus says that the first and great commandment given in the law is to love God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength. And out of that love for God, there will be Love for others. The Apostle John says, We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Speaking of spiritual death. We know that God has done a work in our hearts. We know that we've been born again when there is tangible, visible love for God's people. And then Paul in Galatians tells us that the fruit of the Holy Spirit 
is love. Not only love for God, but also love for Christ's bride. So keeping in step with the doctrine of Scripture and the teachings of the Apostle John and the Apostle Paul, Peter is declaring through this exhortation that if somebody is right with God vertically, they will be right with others horizontally. And I think the best biblical example illustrating this truth is found in the conversion experience of Saul of Tarsus. You remember, before God changed the heart of Saul, Saul hated those who identified with Jesus Christ. With great passion, we read that Saul made havoc of the church, entering into the houses of believers, dragging them to prison. In his sin, Saul lacked compassion. He was merciless. He was vengeful. He was selfish. He was hard. He was filled with self-love. But you know the account. You know his salvation testimony. When Christ gave him spiritual life, when Christ birthed him into the kingdom, Saul had a new relationship. Saul had a burning love, not only for God, but also for God's people. If you'll go back and read the whole of Acts chapter 9, you will find that this persecutor became a preacher. This blasphemer became a believer. The one who had previously hated God's people before salvation desires to be with God's people after salvation. In his lost condition, he was focused on himself, but in Christ, he became focused on loving the brethren so that the brethren might then collectively evangelize the lost. And I'm submitting to you this morning that the changes brought by God in the life of Saul are the same changes God brings about in all who come to Christ in their conversion experience. If you are truly in the faith, you will have a burning love for God and His people. If you are truly in the faith, you will have a humble desire to serve others as Christ served others. If you're truly in the faith, the primary focus of your life will be the advancement of God's kingdom that comes by the edification of Christ's church. So I ask you this morning, is there evidence in your life that God has brought you to himself? You say with your lips that you love God, but do you have a sincere love for the brethren? You see, we we can't go on and talk about the need of Christ-like love abounding among the church if you've never experienced Christ's love in salvation in a personal way. And for many people among the church, this is the fundamental element that is missing in their life. The reason why some are so distant, so fickle, so careless and apathetic toward the things of God among the community of the believer finds its root in the absence of true living faith in Christ. And if this is you this morning, I urge you to come to Christ now. I urge you to see that the reason for your perpetual unhappiness and indifference 
towards the things of God is directly related to your spiritual bankruptcy. What you need is a glimpse of God's love for you in Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But God commendeth, God demonstrated his love towards you in that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. So in talking about Christian love among the church, we need to first understand that Christian love can only abound collectively as Christian love is known individually among its members. A Christian church cannot love as Christ loved unless a Christian church is Christian. Unless a Christian church is in Christ, you can't do it. And so we start with this presumption. The first element of love Peter highlights for us is the presumption of love beating in the souls of those who name the name of Christ. He presumes that the church is a place where there are people who love God and love one another. Now, turning to our second point, I want you to take notice of the priority of love spoken in the text. Peter says, above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. And these words of Peter remind me of Paul's words spoken to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul notes that it is possible for someone among the church to have great faith in God. It's possible for someone in the church to have great spiritual giftedness. It's possible for someone to have a great knowledge of Scripture, great ability to speak the truths of Scripture. Paul says that it's possible for someone to bestow all their goods to feed the poor and even lay down their own life as a martyr. But if they lack, True love for God and others, it all amounts to nothing. Paul says, without charity, without love, you are nothing. And this is what the church in Corinth was lacking. They were lacking true Christ-like love. They were gathering Lord's Day by Lord's Day. They were busy about ministry. Uh, They were submitting themselves to their favorite preachers, saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. And yet they were taking one another to court. They were involved in scandalous sins. They were boasting about their spiritual giftedness, thinking themselves to be better than their brothers. And Paul comes along and says, You can do all these things all you want. You can play church, but without love, you are nothing. So in essence, Paul is saying, you can have the best preachers, you can have the most luxurious buildings, you can have the most exciting ministries, the most expensive high-tech toys and equipment, but if you don't have love one for another, your church will be a dead church. And this is what Peter is saying in verse number 8. Peter is saying that love, Christ-like love, ought to be the stimulating spirit 
of Christ's church. Love ought to touch every aspect of the church's existence. Without love, all other duties are dead. Let me illustrate. If I preach Sunday by Sunday, without a love for God, and without a love for God's people, for you, what will it profit? If a Sunday school teacher only performs their responsibility to lead a Sunday school class for the sake of a position or for the sake of the applause of men, while remaining cold to the ones that they are teaching, what will it profit? If you come to church with God's people, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, and you are particularly focused on what others can do for you, you will be missing out on the divine purpose for which the church has been instituted. The church has been given to us by God as an amphitheater to broadcast God's love toward the world. As I've mentioned before, so I mention again, Jesus said, By this all men shall know that you are my disciples, if ye have love one towards another. And on the contrary, if you don't have love, others won't recognize you as Christ's disciples. If you don't have love, others will only recognize you as a social club. If you don't have love, others will only recognize you as a business. But if you have love one for another, the world will perceive you to be among the ones who are connected with God's love. So love, church, is to be the heartbeat of all that we do. Peter says, above all things, above all ministries, above all your wants, above all your wishes, above all your desires, above all all your plannings, above all your activities, make sure love is abounding on every side. The priority of love needs to be beating in every local church among every Christian. Now, having considered the presumption of love and the priority of love, I want you to notice third that Peter emphasizes the practice of love, the practice of love. Notice it. Peter does not say, have charity among yourselves. He says, you need to have fervent charity among yourselves. And this word fervent speaks of having a sincere, strong, and lasting love. And to have a fervent love is to have a love that is zealous and burning. It's the opposite of having a love that is stiff. A love that's cold, a love that's distant, a love that's avoiding one another. And interestingly enough, this is not the first time Peter has admonished God's people in such a way. If you'll look back at what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, you'll find that at the beginning of this letter, Peter urges God's people to love each other with a spirit of great passion. Notice it, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Peter says, Seeing ye have purified your souls 
in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. This is the assumption of faith. Seeing that you've come to God. Seeing that you have been converted by God's power. Seeing that you've been washed, you've been cleansed. See that ye love one another with a pure heart. How? Fervently. Fervently. And I think the greatest example of fervent love among God's people is found at the end of Acts chapter 2. There in Acts chapter 2 we read that all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. What was it that the first century church was baptized with when they came to faith in Christ? They were baptized with the element of Christian love. Their focus was not on themselves, but on one another. They did not love in word, but they loved in deed and in truth. Their love was not a fake hypocritical love, but a fervent love. And it's only reasonable for the believer to love in such a way because this is exactly how Christ has loved us. Christ has loved us with an everlasting love. Christ has loved us with a burning love. A love that cannot be quenched. So this love I'm speaking of this morning is more than just putting up with someone for an hour on Sunday morning. It's more than just smiling and shaking someone's hand at church. It involves going out of your way to sacrifice yourself for the well-being of others. We're experts at saying, yes, we love God. We love God's people. And then often we fail in the actual practice of it. So again, let me ask, in what tangible ways are you showing fervent love Toward the brethren. You come, you sit in a pew, that's great. But in what way are you purposely serving the ones sitting next to you? And for those watching or listening online who know that they should find a church to belong to, but resist doing so for various reasons, herein lies another reason why personal attendance among a church is essential. You cannot zealously love others through a screen. You cannot fervently love others through an AirPod. You cannot maintain a relationship with others through the Facebook comment section. You can only do what God wants you to do if you are physically among the church. And I'm not not speaking about those who have professions and jobs that calls them to work at occasions in which the church gathers. I'm not talking about those who are sick and laid up at home in their beds. I'm talking about those who can be here but are not here. They say they love God, 
They say that they love God's people, but where are they? What fervent love, what fervent acts of charity are they showing among the church? Where can it be seen? You see, Acts chapter 2, as can be seen and known of all men. So this love that we have for God needs to be exercised. It needs to be displayed. It needs to be shown in reality. Can you imagine if I told you I love my wife, but I never spent time with her? Oh, yes, I love Becky. She's the joy of my life. But I live here at the church Monday to Monday, 24 hours a day. I love her, don't get me wrong, but I really don't want to be around her. What kind of love would be that? And yet that's the love many, quote, Christians have. They say they love God. They say they love the bride for which Christ has died, but they want nothing to do with it. Show fervent charity among yourselves because Christ has shown fervent charity to his people. Now, the fourth and final feature that Peter emphasizes about Christian love is the perceivable product of love, the perceivable product of love. Notice that Peter says, For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Now, notice the verse in its completeness. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity, Christian love, shall cover the, cover the multitude of sins. Here's the end result. Here's the outcome. If Christians are truly loving one another as Christ has loved them, and as God has commanded them, this is what it will lead to. It will lead to forgiveness. Where there is true Christian love, there will be patience. There will be grace. There will be mercy. There will be pardon shown one to another. And listen, where there is patience, where there is grace, where there is mercy, where there is pardon among the church, there will be a spirit of unity. Let's recall the words of Jesus to our attention once again. What was it that he said? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you go around holding grudges one toward another. Is that what he said? By this shall all men know that you are my followers if you are annoyed and hard-hearted one toward another. No. Jesus says, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if you love and being implied in the text is if you forgive one another as I have forgiven you. Ephesians 4.32 And be ye kind one to another. Speaking to the church in Ephesus. You brothers, you sisters, be kind one to another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. You see, Christ is the standard. And let me just say that if you stick around the church long enough, you're going to encounter what we call people problems. 
If you find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. Where there are people, there are problems. Where there are people, there will be personalities. There will be those from the north, those from the south, those from the west, and those from the east. Don't we see this in the first church? Jesus and his disciples. We've got two men who want to call down fire from heaven upon Christ's enemies. We have Peter who doesn't think before he speaks. We have doubting Thomas who is questioning. And even Philip. Can these, this bread and this fish even feed the multitudes? We have men stumbling all over the place, full of spiritual warts and wrinkles, and yet Christ loves them. Christ extends grace. Christ offers His forgiveness over and over and over again. Listen, most church problems can be traced back to this one problem. They are unwilling to love and forgive as Christ loves and forgives. This is why church hopping is so popular. Church hopping is so popular because people are unwilling to forgive. In fact, most relational problems in marriages, among extended family, friendships, can be traced back to this singular issue. Proverbs 10, 12, Hatred stirreth up strife, but love covers all sins. And the implication of the text is not your love forgiving sin. Only Jesus can forgive sin. Only the blood of Christ can wash away sin. But in a practical way, as we are in Christ, as we have been forgiven... We are the vessels who show mercy to others. In a very real way, we are to be a living testimony of the one who has been so gracious to us. So you see, a true Christian will not harbor continual bitterness or resentment in their hearts toward others. A true Christian will not be focused on the injuries or offenses of those who've done them wrong. A true Christian will forgive 70 times 7 because God in Christ forgives us over and over and over again. He does not keep track. This is the singular mark of Christian love. The singular mark of Christian love is loving those who are unlovable. Loving those who hurt you. Forgiving those who deserve, don't deserve forgiveness. So listen, if you want to love like Christ loved, you must be willing to bear with those who have wronged you. This is the perceivable product of love. It's one thing to say that you love the brethren. It's another thing to actually be among the brethren and show it. Peter says, you're hurt, you're discouraged, you've been hurt by the world. And in those times of testing, sometimes your patience is short. You're tested in trial. And there will be times that in that, somebody among the church is going to rub you the wrong way. But you need to remember, 
to have love among yourselves, fervent love, because love, Christian love, will cover the multitude of sins. Now, in conclusion, I want to give you two points of clarification as it relates to the topic of Christian love. Lest anyone takes what I say and runs with it in a wrong way, distorting its biblical meaning, I feel it's necessary that we understand these two truths. And the first truth that needs to be considered is the truth that true Christian love is not some sappy feeling that abides in the mind or the heart. True Christian love is tangibly loving others as Christ has loved us. Let me say it again. True Christian love is not some sappy feeling that abides in our minds or our hearts. True Christian love is tangibly loving others as Christ has loved us. And we can go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and see what true love looks like. True love works itself in action. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity vaunteth not itself. Charity does. Charity acts. Charity demonstrates. Charity shows. So in this world that would cause us to think that love is just some emotion, God reminds us that love is action. Remember, God so loved the world that He gave. God commendeth His love towards us and that He sacrificed Himself through His Son. Greater love hath no man than this, that He laid down His life for His friends. You see, true Christian love involves emptying ourselves for the well-being of others. True love is shown, not said. And the second truth that needs to be considered, especially in our confused, woke society, is the truth that love is not the forceful acceptance of wrongdoing. Love is not the forceful acceptance of wrongdoing. There are some people who assert, quote, If you loved me, you would accept me for who I am. If you loved me, you would tolerate my lifestyle choices. Have you heard this before? If you Christians knew God's love, you would not speak against homosexuality, transgenderism, fornication, adultery, or abortion. If you loved you would leave me alone and accept me for who I am. The Bible tells us that love, true love, Christian love, never excludes truth. Christ was filled with love. Christ was filled with grace. But He was equally filled with truth. He's filled with truth and grace. Nowhere in the Scripture are we called to love someone while we surrender our biblical beliefs and convictions. And by the way, Jesus never pampered anyone in their sin. He loved the Pharisees, but in love He rebuked them when they rebelled against the commandments of God. Jesus loved the prostitutes and the publicans to the extent that He dined with them. Yes, 
but only with the intention of sharing the gospel with them, Jesus never joined them in their worldly practices. So when the world feeds you this lie, that you, if you are a Christian, you just need to love everyone and you need to love everything everyone is doing. Just look them in the eye and lovingly tell them that Jesus did not come to pamper us in our sin. Jesus came to deliver us from our sin. God so loved the world that he gave himself to free men from lies and the stench of death. So as I conclude, let me ask this. If God could stick a spiritual thermometer in your heart this morning to get a reading of your love one for another, what would it read? Would he find love for him? Would it find love for others? Would it be hot? Or would it be lukewarm or cold? You see, God knows. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. And if your love is not what it should be, you need to pray. You need to ask God to give you a love that only He can give. You need to ask God to stimulate your love to this degree that it is burning and zealous and fervent and seen and shown so that we might be a living testimony for Christ. And then the second question I conclude with is this. If God could stick a spiritual thermometer in our church this morning to get a reading of our love for each other collectively, what would it read? The book of Revelation tells us that Jesus is walking in the midst of his churches and he is observing our works. Jesus knows if our love for him and others is sincere and steadfast. Revelation also tells us that it's possible for Christian people to leave their first love. It's possible for Christian churches' love to become lukewarm. So what would it read if God could stick a thermometer in our church and gather its reading? It's my prayer that we would be the kind of people who love, as Peter tells us to love in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, a love that is fervent, a love that is faithful, and a love that is full of 